Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of power here on YouTube, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google, wherever good podcasts are sold. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. And as you can see, I am joined by my excellent friend, John Atak from across the pond. Hey, John. Hey. Good to see you, Chris. <laughs> Good I think this you. is number 22 or number 23. <laughs> <laughs> we have done a lot. I mean, yeah. so you folks know, by the way, out there, I have a playlist on my channel, on my YouTube front page of of all the videos that John Atak and I have done together. And, and they mm. are many. So Saturate yourself. Yeah, so you guys can super saturate yourselves with with uh, the most amazing conversation ever if you uh, if you check those podcasts and, and videos out. We've been uh, we've been doing this for years and it has been quite a journey. I you know, certainly for me and I I know what do you think, John? It it's been remarkable. I, I remember our first meeting in June 2015 in Toronto at the Getting Clear of Scientology seminar. That's right. And um, being impressed that so few people, you know, I wrote a little introduction for, you, for your book, but with, because of this point, that so few people can walk out of Scientology and start deconstructing it, start working on, you know, usually there is a fairly long period <laughs> unless somebody comes along and helps them where people are just stewing in it. Yeah. And you were ready to accept that, that you'd been mistaken. You know, um, which, of course, I'm afraid we all have to admit, when it comes to <laughs> we didn't become super beings. Um, not yet, anyway. Um, so from from then on, watching you, you know, because I'd been out for about 100 years by then already, um, watching you develop your ideas, watching you, you know, keep on growing, keep on expanding and keep on reaching an audience, getting material out there. That, that is so important um, in terms of people's recovery from Scientology or any other authoritarian group or abusive relationship, but also in terms of warning people so that they don't become involved um, right. in such relationships. I think it's been very important, and I admire and respect what you've done, Chris. I really do. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that. And, uh, and of course, you know, uh, Mutual Admiration Society here because you have been an inspiration to me from day one. And of course, you. you know, uh, Piece of Blue Sky was, you know, absolutely foundational in, in mm -hmm. clarifying for me what that experience had actually been versus what mm -hmm. I had been, you know, deluding myself in the echo chamber of Scientology with. And, and it really is this little bubble world that we lived in. And I, and I was all in on that. And, and, uh, mm -hmm. And it's been quite a journey. So, so our talks have been uh, have been real milestones in many ways for me in the in the journey out here. And uh, and now I think we're you know I feel at a point now where you know cognitively we're thought thought wise belief wise I feel like all the Scientology stuff's kind of gone. I mean I don't hmm. you know I you know you realize there's a point uh, after years or whenever however long it takes where you get sick. And the first thought is no longer, who's the SP on my case, right? Who's <laughs> <laughs> suppressing me? That's right. Yeah, but the SP is very simple. In my last auditing session, as you know, <laughs> uh, was a PTS rundown, potential trouble source rundown, to determine who was suppressing me. And, and I hadn't really thought about it. And I said, L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> ding, ding, poor, ding. <laughs> the poor counselor kind of went, she really did blanch. You know, I'd never seen that before. She went absolutely white. And, um, but it was true. It was, you know, it was nine years of being at effect, as Hubbard would say, of, yep. of Hubbard's thinking, not being allowed to think anything that disagreed with him. You know, that I was becoming self-determined by total compliance to the will of the Commodore. Um, no, it, it, you know, it, it, it is that thing. And, and so, I mean, I remember the first time I met Cyril Vosper, who was 14 years in Scientology, met Hubbard. He's one of the cases in Have You Lived Before This Life? That's why they took the names out. And he wrote a book called The Mindbenders, which sold 108,000 copies. And I met him 14 years later, in about 19, you know, after he'd written this book. And he said, I still find myself crossing the road and going, oh, was that an overt? Right. You know? <laughs> 
did I commit an overt? Did I commit a transgression of some kind? And I'm very happy to report that nearly 38 years now since I left, I haven't had anything like that for 37 yeah. years. You know, it's it just isn't there. And it, but I think it is also important to say, um, you know, I've recently been accused of saying that Scientologists don't get wins. And wins is, of course, a self-referential term in Scientology. But putting that aside, um, there, you know, it's up to the person who did it to decide whether it did them any good or not. My decision when I left was, this has taken my whole mind over. This is There is so much of this, nine years of thinking in this way. I have to push it all out. Yep. I can't look at it from within itself anymore. And I will, you know, I look at each bit of it slowly and gradually, and I will accept those things that are good and true and useful, which I think is a very important stage to go through the doctrine. If you leave a group, decide which things you still believe. You don't have to reject everything. You don't have to accept everything. And that will move you towards self-determinism. But the strange thing is that having, you know, rather too deeply researched Hubbard Scientology and the origins of Scientology, I realized that there's nothing in Scientology that doesn't come from somewhere else. Nothing. Right. It, it's all, you know, and I can trace, you know, particular things like sitting with your eyes closed in front of somebody with their eyes closed, um, beginners training routine zero, operating Satan training routine zero, um, is Alistair Crowley. It's that simple. Creative processing, which is the whole basis of the so-called doctorate course at Philadelphia, sit down six weeks and you'll have a doctorate. It's a very cheap way of getting a doctorate. Um, sadly, it won't be recognized anywhere in the academic world. Oh, dear. <laughs> but right there, um, he's using creative processing all the way through. That's totally from Alistair Crowley. And on and on and on. But the other thing I realized was that when he um, co-opts some principle, he would alter it in some way. Yes. And I don't know if that's to do with his sense of this, to make something persist, you must enter a lie into it. You must alter its isness. Yes, that's what he said. Um, so, and, and I realized this at the very beginning, because I didn't have any money for courses, the kind people at the Birmingham organization, and I was going out on the street and recruiting people for them, so they felt they ought to give me something back. They had me read the public relations series by Hubbard and the brand new marketing series. And the marketing series talks about positioning. Yep. And it refers you to the book by Reese and Trout called Positioning, the Battle for Your Mind. And so I went, oh, okay, he's referencing this book and went and read it. And it didn't say what he said. Right. So that was within weeks of getting into Scientology. I'd found... And he later says you should go to the originator of an idea. So that's what I did. And the upshot is I've not re-included anything from Scientology in my life. That and, and I have and I have on my own independent journey with 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 some information from you and from others, I've come to the same conclusions. I I have said many times to people, you know, that um, that, yeah, I had wins in Scientology. I had gains. Of course I did. Why do you think I would have done it for 27 years? But every single one of them, and I do mean every one of them, could have been attained through some other perfectly legitimate, non-authoritarian, non-cult kind of way. You know, And in fact, some of the most substantial gains I had in Scientology that have have had more to do with my communication ability and skill is the study of grammar and the study of of uh, of, of small common words and looking up words in dictionaries. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not some Scientology thing. They just take it to the, you know, ne plus ultra of ridiculousness. Dictionaries have been around since, you know, the same, what, 1400s? So... You know, we have a long tradition of dictionaries. We have a long tradition of grammar and learning grammar. And, you know, and, and I didn't need Scientology to get these skills. <laughs> and the problem is that much of the model of Scientology is erroneous. Yeah. It's that simple. It doesn't work. It doesn't achieve, you know, talking with Karen de la Carrier a couple of months ago. And, and she was saying whenever she says to somebody, look, there are no operating thetans. There are no super beings. There are no clears who don't get colds and have perfect IQ and 
wonderful feelings about everything. There are no release grades. There is nobody in Scientology who can communicate freely with anyone on any subject. And that's that's right at the bottom. You know, and if you fail to achieve any level, you can't achieve the levels above. So if you can't communicate freely to suppressive people, if you can't talk about your case out of session, if you can't have verbal technology where you explain Scientology, these are restrictions on your communication. And so it's a lie. That's right. So she'll say, she said, so she'll tell people this stuff doesn't work. And they'll say, so you didn't have any wins? Right. And, you know, yeah, we got high. You know, we That's had right. very good indicators. We had some euphoria. And a lot of the things we realized were, were really useless. That You know, the, the tendency of most success stories in Scientology is, thank you, Ron, for sharing your wisdom. You know, and it's not wise that the man lived a despicable life. He was a bad human being. He wrecked the people around him. Yep. And he extracted somewhere close to a billion dollars out of Scientologists, while Sea Organization members were living with one set of clothes that they had to wash on a Saturday and dry quickly to put back on. I had a Sea Org member who was explaining to me that one of the things you can do with dirty socks is turn them inside out. And I'm going, I've got enough socks and a washing machine. I don't need to do that. Yeah. So- these people living in really in slavery. That's right. So that he could, you know, have power and authority over them. That's so right. yeah, it's not, wins, it's gains, not. whatever. Just by living life, I have wins. I have realizations. <laughs> it's just the way it is, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, I realized I should ask you this question. Somebody has asked this of me, and I realized I'm talking to someone who actually probably is going to know the answer. Oh God! Um, I hope I do now. Yeah, right. Here we go. Um, I, I, What's really, the I capital just... of Peru? <laughs> um, Lima. So there's a there's a supposition, there's a conjecture that Hubbard mm. didn't really read very widely or really read anything at all much after starting Dianetics and Scientology. That his references to works of other people, of philosophers and scientists and engineers and whatnot, because he has a, there's a, okay, actually, let me, let me, let me, let me preface this for the audience first by saying that you guys, we never talked about this before, but there is a long list, it is pages long, of published works that L. Ron Hubbard refers to in his lectures. Works such as Science and Sanity by Korzybski, The Golden Bow. I can't remember the guy who wrote that, The Golden Bow, right? Right, Frazier. Yeah, Frazier, uh, which is, all, I think that's a philosophical work, right? It's the the beginning work of, of the um, science of religion. He, he seeks to show how um, religion spread and intermixed. It, it, I mean, the version he will have read is the one I've read, which is the 900-page abridged version. <laughs> right. but, but yeah, and, and he'll talk about um, the, the decline and fall of yes. Rome. He'll Given. talk about the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yep. Uh, I think he calls it the 1911 edition. It's actually 1910. Yep. I do have it. Yes, uh, I there's do There's an article in there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. cost me five pounds yeah. for 30 volumes. Great. Yeah. Um, and it showed me how he'd met with the Blackfoot because the railway line that he went on uh, as a baby <laughs> does cross through their reservation. So though his aunt, Margaret Roberts, said there was never any mention of the Blackfoot in the household. But that's another story. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, but, but no, Hypnotism Comes of Age by uh, Wolf and Rosenthal, very important to understanding Scientology. Uh, um, uh, Twelve Against the Gods. Yes, that's Hubbard's his favorite, favorite book. book. Yes. Yeah. Um, 1938, I think. There, yeah. So So the supposition is that Hubbard references these books, talks about these books in a in in what he is trying to portray as a learned way. I have here's my background. Here's what I know. Here's what I've studied. And he and he references or cites these authors, you know, to give himself more credibility. But what is supposed here is that after Dianetics. You know, he didn't really read much of anything. And um, I think the only exception that I would point to or the only one that I wonder about is, um, the se what is it, the Four Seasons of Manuela, the, the, the book about Bolivar, which he seems to have talked about in detail in one of the most important policies he wrote in the, of in the 60s, right? 
but I but I wanted to run that by you is do you think Hubbard was actually a reader and do you think he kept reading after he started developing his own stuff or was he just building on what he had read before? He tended to read popular works. Um, so they were also, of course, in, in the harassment pack, the um, um, information full hat, which, of course, anybody who wants to understand Scientology sadly must read. Yes. Um, L. Ron Hubbard's conference with the investigators is particularly enlightening. But in there, he recommends um, The Spy and His Masters yes. and Black Boomerang, yes. which are 1950s. Uh, publications and they're popular books so he would be um you know uh, the the late great yo so good uh visited saint hill manor and the first time he went there he noticed there were all of these um books in 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 the library there and and so he started writing down the titles of them and was escorted out fairly quickly a few months later he went back and the shelves had been cleared you know, kind of popular books like Wolf and Rosenthal or 25 Lessons in Hypnotism. Um, and um, science fiction novels. Huh. And in talking, you know, he did read a lot. Uh, I think Jim Dinkalsi mentioned this in the debrief he gave of his time looking after Hubbard in Queens for those months in 72, 73. Mm. And there, were, there was a lot of literature Harvey, ha Harvey Haber talked to me about providing books for him and ha how he read an incredible amount of books, but it doesn't seem that he read anything serious. There is no reference to uh, psychology, um, no, no understanding, it would seem, of, of the arts and literature particularly. You know, he, he very rarely mentions any great writer. You know, he's not talking about Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Dickens or anything at any point. That's, that's a good seems point. To... That's true. Dickens, he makes passing reference to maybe once or twice. Yeah. Mm. And so he's not a very educated man. Um, and he is somebody who I think, along with the many other things, and I agree with you, Valor, that he had temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Um but he also had an attention deficit, that, that kind of restlessness where you, you can't you know, redraft your work, you can't edit your work. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to me to look at the, the books of Scientology, which of course claimed as part of him being the most prolific author of all time in the Guinness Book, um, that you can see that they're, they're compilations, notes on the lectures, Phoenix lectures, yeah. 8, 8,008, 0 0.8, 8.80, problems of work, fundamental thought, they're all compilations. That's right. He didn't sit down and write books. He just fired off these bulletins and and these tapes. That's right. Um, and no, there's the evidence is that he will, for example, when he talks about penicillin, that he appears to have seen something in the Reader's Digest that now <laughs> makes him write a bulletin as an expert on antibiotics. Right. Um, the reality is he was fixing himself with antibiotics in the 1940s which is not medically a very good idea because it will create resistance. But, you know, so no, he, he's no sort of scholar at all. Um, right. And, and not I, even also, at I also noted that he himself admitted in, uh, I think, one of his lectures, because I had he had noted a couple times, I think he dedicated uh, um, one of his books to Korzybski, mentioned Science and Sanity. Um, 2008. Yeah, and no, no, science of survival, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. And then admits, <laughs> are you still, with, yeah, there we go. And then admits in a lecture that he never read Korzybski. Somebody explained it to him. Yeah, it, it was explained to him by uh, A.E. Van Vogt, ah. who, of course, abandoned his career as a great science fiction writer. Um, in 1950, and never wrote again. He spent his whole life practicing Dianetics. Um, and it was explained to him by his the second wife that he didn't have, right. according to the shrinking world, right. Sarah, that she'd read um, Science and Sanity. I, I must say, I find it Im impossible. But um, And Anaxagoras, of course. I'm not sure why Anaxagoras is on this list. Oh. But um, Lucretius, Roger Bacon, Francis Bacon. Yep. Um, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, René Descartes, James Clark Maxwell. Huh. 
Yeah, the bottom of the list after Will Durant is, it, sorry, this is Science of Survival. Ah. It's Count Alfred Kozibski, the founder of General Semantics, from where, which was very important, rational emotive therapy and cognitive therapy both have an origin in general semantics and the idea of separating the meaning of a word from the word as the thing itself. Right. The word is not the thing itself. Right. And, of course, at the end of Science of Survival, we have the infinity-valued logic, which was one of the things that attracted me and that I never saw practised in Scientology, <laughs> just the will of Ron, the single-valued logic. But infinity-valued logic is an idea that comes from general semantics. So, oh, um, Okay, there you go. And I know, um, or at least I believe I know, I, I, I surmised that Hubbard took the dual value, the two-terminal universe concept from uh, Buckminster Fuller. Yeah, I think that's possible, or, or even from Faraday. It, it, mm. it, and it's a, a ridiculous uh, reduction of what's happening in the world to say that there's just positive and negative. Right, that's right. Um, Buddhist argument has four poles rather than two. But, you yeah. know. Interesting. What can I say? He he was just this overgrown schoolboy who, who wanted, as, as he said, to uh, catch the clever ones and reel them in. That's what he told Charlie. Nan in 1968. I want right. to catch the clever ones and reel them in. <laughs> and again, and I keep coming back to it, somebody when I was writing articles for the bunker um, pointed out the Philadelphia doctorate course lecture where Hubbard talks about there are the pieces, they mustn't know the rules of the game. There are the players, they have to keep the rules hidden from the pieces. Then there's the game maker. He doesn't have to follow the rules. Right. And Miscavige is the player. And there's a great movie of the same name, of course, which has got nothing to do with this. Um, and Hubbard was the game maker, and he certainly did not follow the rules. He didn't do any of the things that, that were forced upon us. That's he right. just made this elaborate game, this kind of solipsistic idea where we were just creatures of his imagination, I think. We were just his body thetans, basically. <laughs> I think I think, I, I think you're not. I, I think you're right there. I really do. Uh, I found it interesting even when I was in. I mean, so many things are sparking off now as we're sitting here talking about this. Sure, as yeah. I knew they would. And I, th I think I found it even interesting at the time, interesting in a negative way, that Hubbard wrote an issue where he talked about the traits of a genius. And you know where he got him from? An article in the National Enquirer. <laughs> Always an excellent source. That's right. I've been I've been quoted four <laughs> times in the National Enquirer. It's it's absolutely true what you read in there. Exactly, and I just you know the thing. Even as a Sea Org member, as fanatical as I was, because the Sea Org are the fanatics, right? Mm. Even that was a point of questioning for me. That was a dissonance point for me. I was like the National <laughs> Enquirer. You know, I couldn't really argue with the points. I thought, well, this is a decent article, but. My God, what the hell is Ron reading the National Enquirer for? You know, I was can, wondering. Can he afford Mad Magazine right? or something really <laughs> credible? You know? Exactly. Exactly. Well, all right. Well, speaking of books, we have a book to talk about today we that uh, is maybe a little bit more uh, closer to present time and, uh, and is only distantly related to uh, the likes of L. Ron Hubbard. And that is a new book you have put out. Would you like to... Uh, intro this, tell us what this is about. Yeah, the, the book is called Opening Our Minds, and it's um, I've been back carefully through through the book Opening Minds, which we talked about before, Yep. Um, which was published in 2015, and I, I wanted to elaborate on some of the ideas in it, make it more complete, and um, I mean, it, it came about really with, you know, the original book was to say... Yeah, I've worked with about 600 people in their recovery, mainly from Scientology. Um, sometimes that's been, you know, an hour. Um, in one case, it's been 37 years and, you know, periods in between. And it's an interesting thing to do, to be, you know, anybody I meet that's had anything to do with Scientology and you've had this experience, I'm, I'm on. I'm, you know... It's how, how can we get get further with this? How can we go further? With the objective not of bringing people to agree with my way of thinking, because, you know, 
my way of thinking is pretty hopeless. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it to anybody. Um, but bringing them to a point where they are, in as much as we can, thinking for themselves, no longer thinking inside anybody's box, anybody's idea envelope or idea of how they should think. And, and watching that, watching people um, you know, grow mature, if I dare use that word, because you know that, that to me is the objective of human life, to grow up. And um, I'm pretty sure that most people never do, you know, that, um, so, you know, that I'll sell this later on at $500 an hour, no doubt, at some point, um, the John's theory of the universe. But it seemed to me that recovery is a, is a difficult and sticky thing. It often takes decades. Yeah. Um, and it needn't. And I got to the point in the early 1990s where I could sit down with Scientologists and get them through the first 10 years of that in a day, you know, that there's a way of putting somebody's feet on the ground so that they, they now have the automatic questioning of Scientology. They feel it's okay. And once somebody starts taking it apart, they will take it apart. It's not something that, you know, is done from the outside. Right. So having good information, you know, we're, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky is very carefully referenced. Um, I was challenged on the number of reference notes in it. Um, Professor Jim Beverly was saying that he thought there weren't enough reference notes in it. And I counted them. I know it's terrible, isn't it? There were 1,117 reference notes. So giving material so you can say, oh, well, that's what Hubbard was really doing. That's all very important. But, but the real thing is to sever your own connection with that teaching right. but having seen how long that can take and how it devastates people's lives i moved more and more towards preventative work with the idea that if we could if a child could learn say you know ira chaleff's intelligent disobedience his courageous followership if they can learn to be assertive rather than being aggressive or passive aggressive mm. um then and if we create a community of learning instead of a kind of authoritarian system, which we still tend to have in our schools, that people won't, if, if kids know about Cialdini's influence principles, his seven influence principles, if they know, you know how Yuval Law puts, puts ideas together to show how belief is, you know, basically implanted into people, um, so that you can bypass reasoning and you can you can use somebody you can get somebody to use their reasoning to buttress their stupidity fundamentally right so you know looking back at history it's very interesting to see how many great thinkers have been cult members um isaac newton was a unitarian and practiced alchemy and spent more time doing that than on scientific work michael faraday the genius of electricity was a Sandemanian, um, very exclusive cult. There were only about 20 members left by then. Um, we find, you know, or, or they may be like Georges Lemaitre, the, who expounded the Big Bang Theory. He was a Catholic priest. So they may have a, a conviction. They may have something that's kind of going, well, we have this idea of these completely rational robot people who do science and these stupid religious people. But right. the idea is we take belief in. So my thought was, we need to get these simple preventative ideas out. The foundational one to me is the notion of the human predator. That yeah, there are people yeah, I was going to ask predators. about this. Yeah. Yeah. And by, you know, if I'd seen, you know, I've reduced it to a single page, which, which we'll, we must put up on our Facebook page, um, which is like, this is what they do. This is how they are. We, we have video on, on my channel. Uh, in our essentials collection about the human predator, that if all 13-year-olds could recognise that, that somebody was using a seduction tactic on them, you know, right. uh, from the simple idea of love bombing them and telling them how wonderful they are to the, you know, these uh, pickup artists. We were talking about Bag Magnolia, the great Tom Cruise film earlier, where, um, you know, uh, what is it? How to fake like you are good and caring or something is one of the <laughs> signs he puts up on the stage. That's right. And um, pickup artists will, you know, they'll touch your hair 
or they'll give you some little trinket that costs a dollar. There, there are all sorts of tricks that are being used and they're not taught in our society. And they're really easy. If I'd had that one page description of a predator, the first paragraph of Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, I would have closed the book. I would have said, oh, come on, this guy is after my money. <laughs> He's exactly. after my soul. So it's, it's, yeah, prevention, answer prevention is worth a ton of care. That's my hypothesis. Well, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. And I have actually been taking a page from your book, so to speak, in that I have started eschewing, started not utilizing as much the language of psychology and disorders because it is so broadly misunderstood. And unfortunately, oh, yeah. what we experience, and I've, and I've been watching this firsthand for years now, is we, we experience a watering down and a, and a corruption of these terms. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. when you talk about narcissism and we go back to from, you've, you know, you've talked about this many times mm -hmm. and, you know, and these, and these various ways of categorizing people and mental disorders that when it hits the layman when, level, when it hits the broad public discourse, it is, it is consistently, routinely, uh, almost chronically, misunderstood and the language becomes misutilized, right? Yes. But I think, and I, and I think you've hit on something that I've glommed onto strongly, and that is using the word predator, because it mm -hmm. avoids all the psychiatric stuff. It avoids the, the you know, because, because it is, narcissism is a deep topic. There's a lot to know about it. And, and, and it's been something that's been studied and, and argued about and, and uh, debated within the psychology, psychiatric, and even sociological circles for decades. And, hmm. and, it's a, and, it's, and there's a lot to talk about with that. And that, that kind of complication and nuance doesn't, doesn't translate well into social and news discourse where you've only got five, ten minutes to get your points mm -hmm. across. It's, this, it's just the nature of our culture. It's how we are now. So predator, though, predator is a nice, non-psychiatric, non-diagnosing, you know, word, and everybody kind of gets exactly what you're talking about as soon as you say it, you know? Yeah. And I like that word, and I believe that there are human predators, and I think we can talk about human predators without having to pretend that we are diagnosing somebody, hmm. you know? Yeah, and, and it's looking at what the consequence of their behavior rather than, you know, I think we should try and help such people, and I think there are ways of doing it. Yep. Um, though, of course, with the extreme predators you have to lock them up to stop them from causing harm. That's right. But the, the thing is to recognize their behavior so that you're not lured in. And of course, the thing you've always got to get through with anybody is the invulnerability force field that everybody seems to think they, they project. <laughs> I am invulnerable. I could never be taken in by advertising. I've yes. never bought anything I didn't want. And you could ne a friend of mine a couple of years ago said, I would never be stupid enough to join a cult. I looked at him and said, how long have you been smoking cigarettes for? <laughs> right. Because that's doing your, your health a lot more damage. And why did you do that unless it was something that you were scammed into doing? Because, hey, there are no health benefits to cigarettes. That's right. <laughs> you know, Surgeon General's warning. Um, <laughs> That's and, right. but, but we know we're not vulnerable and we know other people are. Um, and so getting to the point of humility where you say, hey, I'm a human being. <laughs> Therefore, I'm vulnerable to these things too. If somebody comes along to me and says, wow, what fantastic hair you've got, John. That's really lovely. Who does that for you? Oh, and gosh, your eyes, they're so, they're limpid pools of, of delight. Uh, you know, I'm probably going to, so thank you very much. We've already got one. Um, but it does work. It's surprising watching somebody, some smarmy salesman, salesperson, getting around somebody with this sort of stuff. Yep. Um, and it's predatory. It, it's I'm selling you something for my benefit. That's um, right. Whether I'm selling you my faith, whether I'm getting 10 or 15% commission, from Scientology for selling you something, or 
whether I'm selling a secondhand car. I mean, Roger Nygaard's um, wonderful movie, Suckers, is well worth watching before going and buying any cars. Um, there, you know, we live in a predatory culture. We live in a culture that accepts narcissism as, as a something to be aimed for That's right. without really understanding what narcissism is. We've talked about this before. It's the wrong word. Narcissists don't love themselves. They don't love anyone. They don't know how to love. And that's what makes this personality, the need for adulation, to make them feel real, to make exactly. them, you know, which, of course, we found with Hubbard very often that the, the amount of people I interviewed who told me about him sneaking off and crying in his bedroom because he felt unloved, you know, and he'd, he'd sulk for three days. You know, John McMaster talked about this. Um, Barbara Cloden, who was his girlfriend in 1950, between his second and third wives. Um, but, you know, this just, it was a part of his personality. It's the collapse of the narcissist. But as you say, we don't need to get into what type of predator we're dealing with. It's just, hey, this person's coming after you, and this is how they'll do it. These are the techniques they use. This is how they make um, fiction sound like facts. This is how yes. they propagandize us, neuro us, and take us in. That's right. I, I was, it was suggested to me the other week that I, I'd um, said that critical thinking is, is, is a waste of time. But, uh, and I had to point out that my, my point of view, whatever had been taken from what I'd said, is that critical thinking is absolutely vital, but it won't save you. Bingo. That's, that's, and, and I would agree with that only because you will not find people who are who at least self-claim to be the most ardent critical thinkers are flat earthers, are conspiracy yeah. theorists, right? Are people who actually believe truly ridiculous things, but they are using the tools of critical thinking. And my point on this, and I, and I, and I think I, 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 I talked about this also with uh, Andrew, is critical thinking is a tool set and a discipline and if you think about critical thinking as only the tools you know i liken it to martial arts it's a, it's a, it's an analogy that just keeps working for me and it's mm -hmm. it because of the disciplinary aspect of it no one's born a black belt there is no such thing as a natural critical thinker it is a discipline and a skill you have to learn and yes. Because our brains operate exactly the opposite way, right? So the skill set, you know, that you develop is is actually kind of pushing back against the natural organic thought processes you're going to have. We yeah. go to, you know, assumptions. We jump to emotional conclusions 24-7. And critical thinking is about overcoming that tendency. But if you don't discipline yourself into questioning and and breaking down that barrier you talked about of i'm invulnerable and everybody else is a is a boob that's the discipline of overcoming that natural tendency we all have we have to think that way because we wouldn't ever leave the house if we didn't we'd be you know cowering in fear because the world's a scary place so we have to have this sort of invulnerability shield that we feel but if we can acknowledge hey guess what we're really just pumping ourselves up a little bit here that's really not true we are extremely vulnerable and here are the ways in which we are vulnerable logical fallacies cognitive biases these are these are these are vulnerabilities that we have so i believe that critical thinking is a is a is a discipline rather than a set of that a set of logical fallacies and i've seen it corrupted into it's the tools rather than it's the discipline and i've made that mistake myself in my journey of learning about this stuff and so i that's my take on it you know it's not in and of itself a thing that is going to guarantee anything but i believe that like martial arts it sets you up to to succeed in situations where most people would fail, you know, and, and, and uh, give, give people a good kicking intellectually when they need it. Well, exactly. And actually, even along, even using that analogy, um, I'll, I'll strain it a little further by saying, you know, what do you hear every single what, what have I heard all my life? Every martial arts class I've ever taken, every video or documentary I've ever watched with people who really know what they're talking about when it comes to martial arts is they are asked, 
well, what do you do if you're confronted on the street? What do you do if you're confronted, right? And they said, the best tool you have is your Nikes. You turn and run, man. You do not get into that fight. No. Even though you're better prepared, you're, you're disciplined mentally, psychologically, right, and physically for the fight, you know the best thing to do is not fight. So when I see people using critical thinking on social media or in discussion in conversation where they're bludgeoning people with it, I go, you're the you're the white belt man. You're the guy who doesn't get it yet. You haven't cog you haven't like cognited. You haven't you know uh, gotten to the level. You right. You haven't graduated. Was the word I was looking for to understanding that this is a discipline it's not just a set of tools any any fool can pick up a sword and hack somebody with it it takes discipline to know when and how and where it's actually appropriate yeah you know absolutely and absolutely that they're tools that are used within a discipline and you have to understand what you're doing right um and you hit a very important nail on the head which is that if we thought we were vulnerable, as you say, we wouldn't be able to go out of our door. <laughs> we have to believe that our perception is good. Yet we know that the pet cat and the pet dog can hear much better than we can. Um, yep. We know that our visual perception, you know, compared to an eagle, it's rubbish. Yep. There are great gaps in the wavelengths that we as humans perceive before we even then get into the how we interpret those perceptions, which is something that was pretty much fixed by the time you're five or six years old. It's not an intellectual process. You know, you, as somebody said, you know, you wake up somewhere around five or six years old and you're in the river, you're swimming. Yep. You, you didn't develop anything to get there. So being able to, humility, being able to, to look at the way we approach the world and say, I could be wrong. And let That's me right. think about this again. Being willing to talk with people who you are, who agree, dis, you know, who disagree agreeably, who who are willing to go through these things. It, in looking at the history of critical thinking, it, it seems in the 20th century to have come from one man, Robert Thulas. Hmm. In 1930, he wrote a book called Straight and Crooked Thinking. So, and and he would continue to have bestsellers, editing that book right into the 1960s. It's an interesting thing to point out that for two years in the 1940s, he was the head of the Psychical Research Society. So you have somebody who is the great advocate of critical thinking, and yet is an absolute believer in extrasensory perception, uh, levitation, and communication with the dead, those three specific subjects he wrote about, he wrote a book about it. And so we find, well, hang on a minute, surely this critical thinking would lead you to be, you know, what I believe in, <laughs> whatever that is. It, it couldn't possibly lead to somebody who was thinking they were talking with the dead. Right. But it did. So it, it's bringing that together. And I think very much understanding Yuval's, Yuval Law's ideas, which can be found on my channel um, in some depth, um, about how evolution has taken place and, and, you know, how we are susceptible to different forms of love. I mean, uh, first met him at Toronto in 2015 too. And he first described his model. And I looked at it and went, where's infatuation? You know, you've got parent love for your parents, parental love for children, sibling love. Where is infatuation, this driving force in us that we want something new and we want it now and we're going to fall in love with it. Now we're bored with it. And we want to fall in love with something else that, you know, by the time the package arrives from Amazon, I'm not interested in it anymore. I want to order the next thing. The, this is an aspect of, um, there, there was an attempt in German to introduce the word Neugier, which I, I'm told, and I don't speak German, would mean the disease of newness that that this desperate quest for novelty which, which the thrill seeking which runs our culture you know right gives us k-pop and everything else yes um and that getting getting past that understanding that in ourselves is so important um yeah and and as you say there's critical thinking on the one hand and there's common sense on the other mm -hmm. and common sense is usually wrong 
you know, we require empirical examination. Um, that's right. And that's, and, and I think, see, for me, it's always been the struggle, and this has been years now in the making for me, of the struggle between, you know, the, the emotional side and the rational side, right? And these are, these are convenient frameworks. This isn't really how our brains operate. But, you know, but people have been trying to apply these models of how we perceive the world as though that must be how the biology works. And it doesn't. Mm. It, it works completely differently. The, the networks and what the neurons are doing is it, 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 it leaps and bounds more complicated than, than two terminal models and this kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. so you've got so, and we're only just barely, really starting to you know get a grip or, and get our get our wits around this. So, I think it's safe to say that you know these even even understanding that you're talking about a model of thinking when you talk about critical thinking or you're talking about rationality versus emotion. These are not biological constructs that really exist. This is just the way mm. we, we think about thinking. Mm. You know, and even understanding that much is, again, vital to critical thinking if you're going to use it as a tool set rather than as some weapon to bludgeon somebody with or try to use it to um to rationalize or confirm your emotional needs mm. you know um these are these are different things and it's and it's absolutely vital that they be differentiated or you get silly stupid mistakes and assertions that you know i'm speaking with the dead because i'm applying critical thinking you know this is just this is just silly and we and it's mm -hmm. so silly that it's silly like you know like really obvious kind of silly and it's the it's the it's missing the forest for the trees kind of silly so mm -hmm. so i i take pains to differentiate this because i want people to understand that that this discipline is necessary and it is important because i think that it gives us a step up in our ability to think through problems and think through things logically, but to think it's a panacea for all problems or that it's going to deal with emotional issues or mental health problems or societal ills is, is a little silly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a particular problem at the moment. I, I've three times written to New Scientist. I often had letters published there. I've been a subscriber for 30 years. Because I want to see what's happening in the world of science generally, and you know, it's it's very well written. It's very accessible. You know, I can understand some of it. Um, but they keep putting articles out about mindfulness, and um. I keep sending the same letter in, which actually refers to various professors who are meditators or mindfulness practitioners themselves, who are saying, "Hang on a minute," and it's fascinating that a science magazine they haven't published anything critical of mindfulness in their letters pages and we're already that's already a little bit worrying but when you see that say willoughby britain who's a professor assistant professor at brown she did a, a study of she's a mindfulness meditator she did a study of meditators sleep and she found that mindfulness people had worse sleep than the control group they wake more frequently they sleep more lightly this is a bit worrying. So she put up a site, still a mindfulness meditator, saying, watch out for these things. It fascinates me to come into this region of science, new scientists, you know, all of these science journalists. These aren't just regular journalists. They've got science degrees and they don't want to talk about this. Now, my guess is I, I suggested um, to, to uh, the big questions, which is a BBC um, discussion program that they do something called mindfulness and they did and when i you know we're i'm invited to be on the show you know and all of this and when i said are you going to say that the presenter nikki campbell is a mindfulness meditator i was suddenly dropped from the program and the program did not include any statement that the actual guy doing the interviews is himself according to the producer who's a friend of mine a fervent mindfulness so we get into this area where critical thinking is what seems to be being used, right. but it's actually a way of excluding this debate. Right. You know, where critical thinking should be, and I'm sure Robert Thulas would agree, encouraging debate. It's more right. kind of John Stuart Mill 
on liberty in a book we well that's exactly forget. that's exactly right and and it, and those are the kind of red flags that to me are are critical thinking right and you know mm. it's like well wait a second are we shutting down debate or are we encouraging debate now mm. obviously you know there are there's a judgment factor here but but we don't need to go to those extremes about okay well, well should we we should we you know does that mean it's good critical thinking to debate you know nazis well it, okay hey leprechauns you know. yeah <laughs> let's let's not go to the ridiculous extremes to try to you know validate or invalidate this let's let's talk more about real life science is made up of people who are human <laughs> They're humans who it's a practice of humans. And guess what humans love to do when they get together in groups? Propagate common ideas that they all think are wonderful. And when something is the flavor of the month, whether it's in science or whether it's in religion or whether it's in sewing, people get excited. They get euphoric. They get awe experience. They get all the stuff you've all talked about. And then they kind of lose their damn minds for a while because they're so focused on this one thing, they kind of have a hard time being critical of it because they're still wrapped up in the newness and amazingness and what they see. Let's not let's not paint everybody with an evil brush either because what they see mm-hmm. as a and I'm not saying you're doing that, but people do. They pay they sure as hell paint science with a black brush and and it's undeserved because the same black brush applies to religion and sewing and anything else. It's it's that we get excited about new ideas and their potential, and while we're exploring their potential, critical things come up. You know, criticism valid criticisms start arising. And the propagators, the disseminators, the people who really believe in the idea, their emotions take over. Ah, but this is the good thing. This is the new thing. This is the thing I'm investing my emotional, you know, needs into. Whoever gave anybody the idea, I mean, wherever this really stupid-ass idea came from that scientists aren't human first, I mean, we really got to kill that idea because it's really, really bad because it gives people the impression that scientists are exactly as you describe these robot automaton, you know, objective thinkers. They're no more objective thinkers than anybody else. Not until they get specialized training. And even then, emotions are going to rule the day. So we always have to filter everything that we see coming out of science the same way we have to filter coming out of anything else. You know, you got to be, you got to have that critical thinking hat on, I guess you could say, in order to be able to parse out these kinds of things. And when we give over too much faith in anything, as us ex-cult members know, we end up getting burned, you know, and, mm. and, and, I, and science is not an exception to that. And I know that there is a worship of science that occurs in certain circles. It's just as wrong as you know, going all in on anything. And and that's that's another part of the lesson as far as I'm concerned, because I, mm-hmm. I had to pick all this up that I'm talking about right now through the school of hard knocks, through being wrong yeah. enough times to go, oh, right, it's humans writing these studies <laughs> with their biases and their views. And anyway, I think I've made my we, point. You we, know. Absolutely. We like stories. And, yeah. it, you know, it, it can't, and you underline that twice in red, human beings like stories. Mm-hmm. So you'll get something like Yuval Harari's Sapiens, which tells the story of how on the savannah, our brains were formed and modules came about, and they're inescapable. You know, we're born with them. So religion is, you know, Scott Atron talks about this, that, that somebody on the savannah saw a bush moving in the wind and thought there must be something supernatural. There's lightning in the sky. Um, it's a fairly ignorant analysis. But the story is coherent, just like the id, ego, superego of, of Freud. It's a story. It's a coherent story. It doesn't exist in the human brain. Right. There, there is no distinction between the id, the ego, and the superego in a human being. That's it's right. an interesting way of looking at certain of our attributes. This story about the divided brain, that um, when the corpus callosum was cut in the early 60s in grand mal epileptics, there appeared to be two people in there, mm-hmm. that if you separated the eyes, they'd write that they were looking at an orange, which one eye was looking at, and they'd say they were looking at an apple. And this led to the popular New Age belief that there are two people in there. Only if you cut 
the bridge between the two hemispheres of the brain are the two hemispheres separate. They're integrated all the time. They're functioning together. So there isn't a kind of intuitive emotional self and a rational calculating self. Those are not distinguishable. But the story sounds so nice. Right. The thing is to be able to check stories because we believe stories. And it happens, I'm told if you go to a conference on physics, you'll find people arguing with each other and, you know, you'll get the, the little two little echo chamber groups going at each other and yeah. you know, it can be a tremendous amount of rivalry and aggression. Yeah. You're going, come on, guys, you know, this there should be empirical ways of testing this information. And they go, yeah, but there are three different schools of mathematics and it depends which one you use. That's right. So, at the edges, science gets a little bit fuzzy. That's right. But along the way, in terms of predicting probabilities and possibilities, it's very useful indeed in terms of then developing technology, which means that we can have this conversation. Science is very useful indeed. Um, exactly. I mean, one of the, and we probably better bring this to a close, really, because <laughs> we just sit around. You, you, you very kindly, when, when I was, Andy Nolch had accused me of... Um, <laughs> That he'd said, and um, Chris Shelton knows that, that John is passive aggressive. I, being a foolish person, I, I came and said, come on, tell me. And you very kindly said, no, but you do gish gallop. And I went, <laughs> wow, what a brilliant expression. That's great. I am. And so are you. You know, what can I say? We're people who have a lot to say and yep. Yep. get caught up in what we're saying. Yep. But one thing that, that I came across during the revision of opening our minds, was this concept of the unconscious mind. And I kind of went, you know, actually, this is in all religion. It's in all, almost all psychological, this idea that there is inside you, this thing, this invisible beast that you don't know about that has agency. It could be a demon. It could be a gadon. It could be a dibuk. It could be a body thetan, or it could be the unconscious mind. And I kind of went, there's no such thing. There are unconscious processes, yes. but there's no agent directing them. Correct. Correct. So there's no enemy within, which right. is the primary way of recruiting somebody into an abusive relationship, an authoritarian relationship. Say, you don't know what's going on inside you. I can help you out with that. That's Just right. sign the check. That's right. <laughs> so, That's it, right. Uh, I mean, I hopefully... When the when the original of the book came out, um, somebody who had been a, a Ron Hubbard aide and had gone off and studied psychology and all of this wrote to me and said he'd, he'd read the book and he finally understood what happened to him in Scientology. He was in the Sea Org, he was on the ship and all of this. And I was amazed that this very knowledgeable person who studied much of the material that I've studied over the years was kind of going, oh, you've pieced this together. Because, of course, I use Scientology to exemplify many points of authoritarianism. It really is the, you know, uh, Hubbard said it could be called the religion of religions. Well, it could be called the cult of cults, you know. It, it's <laughs> yes. a quite remarkable construction, quite different. It, it's fascinating now that about half of our audiences, even when we're talking about Scientology, are never-ins. They're people who've never been near Scientology. They're just going, wow, this is so fascinating. That's right. And editing endlessly that. So anyway, the, the thing is, I've only got a proof copy in front of me here, but it is now available. Excellent. It's got a nice key on the cover. That is nice. Which is, I, I better not tell people this is actually my house key because they'll make <laughs> copies of it. <laughs> No, not really. Um, and it, it, we'll come back and talk about some more of these elements, yep. Um, yep. I'm sure, in, in the future. But um, I think, think, have I actually come to the end of a statement here? I'm actually saying that we can uh, We can finish? wrap up. <laughs> there, there, there is case gain all around, John. <laughs> yes, yes. Would you like to write a success story? Yeah, exactly. Would you like others oh. to have, the, the have some more gains to yours? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think um, my needles floated away. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I feel so released. Um <laughs> <laughs> I actually, yes, I think we are gonna get together very soon. I think in a couple of weeks mm. we're gonna we're gonna do this again because I wanna actually right. drill down on predators more mm. and what you have to say about that and the relationship between some of the study that you've done, uh, you know, from and otherwise. Mm. Um 
because I'd like to talk more about that and the characteristics of it and how we yeah. can talk more freely about that. And I want to popularize that because I want people to – I would like people to start using those terms more so than these faux, you know, sort of pretense – of using psychiatric terms that 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 aren't applicable most of the time that they're being used, hmm. um, you know, and and when they're applicable, they should be used. But because it's so watered down, you know, the applicable times, it's it's the it's really I'm not saying anything different than the way we talk about Nazis. I mean, everybody's a goddamn Nazi these days. When the fact of the matter is that. As far as I'm concerned, Hitler and the real Nazis, like the, like the hardcore guys back in the day, I think they would laugh at most of the neo-Nazis that exist in the world today. I think they would think they're a bunch of Cretan idiots. You well, know, they think they'd to, actually exterminate quite a lot of them because yeah, they wouldn't that's believe them to be Aryan in their origins. That's so right. They're Slavs or slaves, according to the Nazi ideology. So, I, you know, that's another conversation because the last few months I've actually been studying Nazism and um, particularly the occult aspects of it, the yeah. real ones, not the Spear of Leviathan, Morning of Magicians nonsense, but the beliefs that they actually have, which have now, of course, the nonsense beliefs have now been incorporated. So neo-Nazis now believe just the most incredible raft of nonsense. But Nazis were people who believed that Adolf Hitler was the living embodiment of the Aryan people. He's dead. There can be no more Nazis unless, of course, the National Enquirer is right and he's living on the moon with Elvis. <laughs> right. Which is always possible. That's exactly right. With Q. And oh, oh yeah. yeah, the many, the many faces of Q. That's yeah. right. But you've seen this thing of the linguistic analysis shows that many people are writing these things, yes. which is so unfair. <laughs> you know? None of them with Q clearance, I'm I, uh, to say. I know exactly. What are you gonna do? What are you going to do? So, exactly. Um, so, I, anyway, I just, I like to go off on that only because I just think that some of the modern incarnations of some of these things are the most watered down, you know, corrupted piece of nonsense. Not that the Nazis were a bunch of great guys. I'm not trying to rewrite history. I'm saying that these pay, that these, these idiots in the, in, in the modern times pale in comparison, actually. And we use these terms and we and we throw this this verbiage around as though we know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it and it really ends up watering down the true evil that does exist. And we can't mm -hmm. and we have to keep finding new words because we keep misusing the old ones. And this is just yeah. a cycle of generations and language. Mm -hmm. We can't escape it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna bitch about it anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> But we have to we have to constantly rebrand. As Joseph Campbell said, we have to tell the stories anew in every generation yeah. and tell them as much as we can and in as many places and as many forms so that it people get to think. If you use a word like cult or you use a word like hypnosis, people stop thinking. They, they're pretty sure they know what it means, but everybody's got a fairly different idea of that. If you use the word authoritarian group, then you can say, well, yeah, it is an authoritarian group. They've got a boss who's a bully and they do what, what the boss says. Yep. Um, if you would use the term guided imagination, then suddenly hypnosis becomes clear and you understand why Scientology is a form of guided imagination. There you go. So exactly. Go. Exactly. So, yeah. All right, man. Great. Well, thank you very much for uh, for helping thank me uh, this week and uh, and having this conversation uh, on our on our podcast here. We will um, we'll be getting this up real soon. And folks out there, of course, there will be more about this. Now, your book is out, so where can they get it? Well, you should be able to get it from any bookstore. It, it's uh, with Ingram Spark, who distribute to libraries. You should be able to order it from a library. It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon as a Kindle. And we hope in the next week to have it out on Audible as well, because I followed your advice <laughs> and begrudged it because I hated recording the damn thing, which I'd never <laughs> expected. I get 20 minutes in and then my throat would start mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's work, man. You I tell it. you, I, I don't look forward to doing it again, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, we're going to, we're going to do that. Okay, cool. Yep. So that's how you guys can get it. I will probably, um, not probably, I'll definitely post a link at least to the Amazon 
uh, place where y'all can get it because at least then if you're looking for the Kindle or the uh, print-on-demand version, you can get it that way. Uh, I mean, you can maybe go for a new, new record that, that I believe um, the original piece of Blue Sky um, was the most stolen book in British and American libraries. The Portland, Oregon Library had nine copies stolen. The Miami Library had six copies stolen. And I'd like to point out, whoever is doing this is being unethical. And it's a shame that my publisher didn't pay me the royalties on all the extra <laughs> copies. So do steal this book from your library so they have to order another copy <laughs> and pay me some more money. <laughs> Okay, guys. I think uh, I, I think we might suspect Scientology behind some of those thefts. Maybe. What makes you think that? I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what. what That's what, inductive what, reasoning. I, we don't permit that. Uh, me and my silly assumptions. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, thanks for coming around and watching us uh, gab on here at Thank a mad you. rate. And uh, I very much do appreciate your support out there. And on that note, I do need to say. Um, if y'all would sign up on my Patreon, uh, support my show, show me some love, that would be amazing. And also allow me to continue to do this work because, you know, these lights and all this stuff, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it, it, it costs. All right. All folks. these toys on the desk here. They're <laughs> not free, you know. Exactly. Exactly. All right, folks. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.